Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Dr. George Brooks of Next Horizon to talk about his experience with ag tech and aquaponics. Founder and president of Next Horizon Group, Dr. George Benjamin Brooks Jr. holds an earned PhD in wildlife and fisheries management from the School of Renewable Natural Resources at the University of Arizona and is an established social, environmental, economic, and political leader and business consultant. With the motto of Ag Tech for the Real World, Next Horizon focuses on bioenergy development in Africa and the development and application of new urban farming technologies like aquaponics to solve real world social, environmental, and economic problems. He is a member of the board of the National Aquaponics Association and America's Tilapia Alliance. He has also won the City of Phoenix Martin Luther King Living the Dream Award for his work in urban food systems and access for underserved communities. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Brooks. Thank you. It's good to be here. Oh, absolutely. Love to have you. So I just shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, that, my friend, is a long story, but <laughs> it's not a, all that much like, unlike yours. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you know, you've told me some things about how you were very young and you had an interest in fisheries, and, and uh, you wrote a report on that. Uh-huh. Um, I, was even, I was even younger. Oh, wow. Um, my parents used to take me when I was a child to San Diego and to Los Angeles, and they used to love to go to the beach. And for some reason, I had a knack for being able to kind of stuff an old-fashioned thermos jug. I'm, I'm 60 years old now, so uh-huh. that was quite a while ago, right. back in the 60s. But take an old-fashioned thermos jug, fill it through full of marine life, bring it home, and be able to keep it alive. Oh, wow. And it was just a knack that I always had. And so 
from there, I had developed an interest in marine biology. I wanted to be a marine biologist. Eventually, I did achieve a degree in marine biology, but yep. we'll discuss that later. <laughs> um, my mother, um, my father was a, was a preacher, mm-hmm. and uh, he filled me with my activism that I currently display today. My mother was a, it is um, or was no, she's still with me, but. Um, a, a scientist, a botanist, a oh, nice. bacteriologist. Yeah. I know she actually was working on some on a disease. She was the first one actually to discover how to um, grow a particularly nasty disease that we still have today uh, in um, the laboratory. You can't you can't grow a disease. You can't study a disease. And she was the first one to learn how to grow valley fever uh, in the laboratory. Oh, this interesting. Was the foundation for their research you see going on even today because they still haven't cured it. Wow. Um, but she but she didn't want to bring that home to her bouncing baby boy, so she put that and went in, into teaching. But, so, but she gave me my scientific curiosity. Nice. As well as allowing me to, to wreck all of her laboratory glassware that would probably cost $10,000 a day that I managed to break in pieces. <laughs> but uh, as she was the one who helped me to see the connection between uh, growing plants and, and my love of water and and the uh, marine organisms, this thing called aqua, aqua, aquaculture. Mm-hmm. Um, from well, this was back, you know, during the '70s when I was in college, and I had the pleasure of meeting the only fish farmer in, in the Phoenix metropolitan area, uh, a guy named Arnold Burr. He and I got along exceedingly well. I ended up being his biologist, but was there after I had gotten my bachelor's degree in zoology from ASU. Wow. I realized that I really needed to go back to grad school uh-huh. because. All the things that I was seeing, I needed a more advanced education to truly understand them and be able to um, apply them properly. Uh-huh. So I went back to San Diego, San Diego State. I love San Diego so much. Oh, nice. And I got a master's in marine biology. Right. And then I came back, and I was by pure serendipity at the very last moment, or by, by divine inter- intervention, I managed to um, be able to apply for and win the position of the um, aquaculture well, it, it was it was working as the aquaculture extension specialist for the University of Arizona. Wow. Um, the yeah, I wasn't I, that wasn't my title officially because I did not have have a doctorate as of yet. You need to have a full doctorate in order to be officially an extension specialist. But that was the job that I did. Wow. I was the expert in fish farming for the university, along with the other experts they had had in cotton and cattle and everything else. Right. I fulfilled that that position. Um, that was a temporary thing, and when I got through with that, the university was kind enough to suggest that I should come back to, for my full PhD, and which I did. And so I have a PhD now in renewable natural resources with a focus on wildlife and fisheries. And nice. my focus has always, always been in aquaculture. Now, the thing about um, the extension position is that uh, we are applied scientists. We are a, a different kind. We're not research people per se, but we do do research. Our job is to take is to either do it ourselves or to take all of the research necessary, and to be able to take a fish to a farmer and say, "If you do this, you'll make a profit." That means that we have to understand the the biology, the ecology, the uh, the the um, sustainability, the, the the labor cost, uh-huh. everything that goes into running a business. We have to be able to apply our science to that so that a farmer can take the combinations of things and actually put it into a pond and make a profit because in the aquaculture is a business. Wow. And that particular way of doing things I continue to do because for me that is the best way to go. You know, the issue is to research and then apply the science to the benefit of mankind. Yeah. And that's basically what, what we did in extension. Wow. I continue to do that today, now focusing in aquaponics. Now, aquaponics is a, is a method of aquaculture. But some people say, no, it's not. Well, it, it is a method of aquaculture. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, one thing that I, I always wanted to do back in the day uh-huh. was to bring aquaculture into the city. The, now, the kind of systems that I work with, with the farmers that I work with, we right. were looking at thousands of acres of land, yeah. so it wasn't practical to do so. Um, but what aquaponics did was that um, to bring aquaculture into the city, we would have to have what's called recirculating aquaculture systems, so a way to recirculate the water so that it's yeah. cleaned up. But those recirculating systems were very expensive, and they also would build oh, up yeah. a certain waste product called nitrate, 
and you have to dump the water. And you can't do that in a drought-prone area like Phoenix. Right. It's completely impractical. And I wanted to... cost-effective. I actually wanted to kind yes. of unpack that a little bit. So if, sure. if I'm hearing you straight, um, and you live here in Phoenix along with me, if I'm hearing you straight... Born, what I'm, born and raised. There you go. Um, I was raised here. I, didn't, I wasn't quite born here, but... Um, you're doing aquaculture, which is fish farming, in the desert. Mm-hmm. Yes. In the desert. And, that is correct. And there, in the 70s, so we're talking in the 1970s, right? Mm-hmm. So was well, there... Well, actually, well, actually no, the, the fish farming began literally in the, in the January of 1980. But I was introduced to it in, uh-huh. the, um, in 1977 uh-huh. uh, when I was working... I think it was 77 or 78, I had an internship at the USDA Water Conservation Laboratory uh-huh. under the, a, a great scientist by the name of, of Dr. Bruce Campbell, uh, who's going to probably get to listen to this, because you know, I'm blessed that he's still with me. Nice. And uh, he, and, uh, he uh, uh, suggested that I should go back and get a higher degree. He was the first nice. one to put it, put it in, into my head, but he allowed me in, in, um, to, to co-author with him a, a paper focusing on aquaculture of using arid land resources and how wow. to keep, keep water wrong, warm. And so that was kind of the beginning of my actual scientific career working with them. But yes, we, but we are doing um, fish farming in the desert. That's the, the idea and here. Yes. So in the 80s, was there a lot of fish farming going on here in the desert? Actually, there was. We had the, we had the beginnings of a very powerful industry. Uh-huh. Um, there were many areas of the state, you know, between Phoenix and Yuma, where the groundwater is warm. And... And since we have farms that are, are using tens of thousands of, of, of acre feet per year mm-hmm. of this warm water flowing into the cotton, the idea was can we put the fish in between the well and the cotton? And it was a, a, a very interesting idea and had a great deal of promise. And so during the wow. 80s and early 90s, there was a proliferation of fish farms, you know, in, in largely in a place called the Hyder Valley. Uh-huh. The, the Hyder Valley is about 45 minutes to the north, I mean, to the northwest of Gila Bend. Right. Uh, it, it, it's a place called Agua Caliente, hot water. Uh, the, uh, apparently, there are geologic formations underground that are old volcanoes and so uh, For a long time, there were actual hot springs there until the, uh, the farmers wow. drilling uh, the wells broke the pressure caps, but the water is still there. It comes out of the ground between 85 and 110 degrees. Oh, my gosh. And, and so it's a wonderful water and great water for growing tilapia. Yeah. Also, oh, yes. because it's, it's, it's just slightly salty, um, that, that kind of knocks off the disease issues because the parasites don't like the salt water. Oh, and my so gosh. It was, a, it was a great place to grow fish, but... Uh, there were there were some things that did not work in this idea. Now, mind you, there's still one person out there who has a great tilapia farm doing some really fantastic work. But overall, uh, the the industry did not last uh, because the, the, of, of the cultural differences between yeah. the farmers uh, growing cotton and the farmer oh. and the issue of integrating fish into that process. Got it. Um, that we didn't have the infrastructure in place. The cotton farmers have a complete infrastructure. All right. so, uh, the, the, the cotton gin does a lot of the work. The farmers basically grow it. The cotton gin provides the marketing and, and, and buys the product from them. For the fish, they had to do all of that. Right. And plus, we, did, we had no processing plant for any of this, and so we didn't have the necessary infrastructure to really support the industry. And then um, and the mid part of the 90s and late part of the 90s, we began to see the influx of foreign products. Mm-hmm. And that four part basically outcompeted, you know, the wow. fish coming from Arizona. Yeah. It was cheaper to grow a fish overseas and put on an airplane and fly it over here yeah. than it was to grow our own fish here. And so, so, so your solution, yeah, your solution was to bring it into the cities, and you kind of touched on it a moment ago, called aquaponics. So tell yes. us, tell us about what aquaponics is. Well, aquaponics, well. In order to pick up where I left off on that particular story, we have these things called recirculating aquaculture systems, and they were not practical to use in the city because there would be a waste buildup called nitrate, and we would have to dump that water, and it's way too expensive. What aquaponics does is that the filter, the filter now becomes a profit center. Instead of only using bacteria, which leaves the nitrate, you, you throw it into a bed of plants. This bed of plants 
nitrate, the other term for it, is plant food, fertilizer. <laughs> so, Gotta love and that. So, so we have this bed of plants now that are, that are polishing the water that you can actually sell. So, so you can grow all kinds of, um, of vegetables and fruit and such, mm-hmm. and this becomes a second profit center for, for your farm, and you don't have to waste any water because now the water is clean completely, and it goes back to the fish in the proper format. So it was a perfect combination of results. The thing about it, it's a very, very old concept. Uh-huh. It was a very, very old concept. In the thousands of years old, people have intuitively know, known this. They didn't know that, you know the science behind it like we do. Uh-huh. But you know, the, the Incans did it um, as an example. But they knew that if you had fish in the water and plants in water irrigated by that water, irrigated by that water everything grew. They yeah. understood this. And... But it took, um, it always takes somebody in our modern context to put things together for us. Yeah. You know, just like people have been trying to fly for hundreds of years, sometimes <laughs> actually getting out, getting out on the ground, yep. um, you know, for a minute. <laughs> um, but it took these two guys in North Carolina to put a kite and a motor and some bravery together oh, to, yeah. put, to have the first airplane, okay, mm-hmm. Orville and Wilbur Wright. Same thing was true with aquaponics. A lot of people were kind of edging up to the idea, and some doing it successfully, but the guy who was given most of the credit is uh, Dr. Jim Ricosi uh, from the University of the Virgin Islands. Uh, the reason why he did this is because the Virgin Islands is water poor. Yes, it's surrounded by an ocean, but there's not much fresh water. All right. He wanted to find a, he wanted to find a way of growing more crops you know, per gallon of, of fresh water. Yeah. And, he, and so he came up with this method you know, to to have a fish tanks and then have these wrap these it, what they call them the, the hydroponic section. I disagree with that particular particular characterization, but we will call we could call it that for that for now. Uh-huh. Uh, where we have these, these floating rafts, you know, in the bed of water that the plants are embedded in, and their roots go down into the water and uptake the nutrients, and then that works it back up to to the fish. It, it even has a name now, the UVI system, the University of the Virgin Island system. Oh, nice. The thing about it is. The thing about it is that Jim Ricosi and I belong to the same organization, the World Aquaculture Society. Uh-huh. And if I remember back in the year 2000 that when I first heard about, I went to one of either his presentations or someone who was associated with him um, at the meeting, and I quite frankly wasn't impressed. <laughs> you know, I uh-huh. was not impressed. No, no, that was very foolish of me. <laughs> that, oh, to be not impressed? I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, because I had just watched our industry here in Arizona die because uh, we, we couldn't grow fish cheap enough. Uh-huh. And when I asked them, when I asked the presenter, whether I don't remember if it was him or not, when I asked the presenter about the actual operational costs, operational costs were outside of my boundaries. Uh-huh. So it didn't match my needs for a cheap fish. It wasn't until literally 10 years later um, and really researching and beginning to understand the needs of urban farming, you know, watching some of the things that you were doing as far as uh, making the urban farms interesting and possible in Phoenix. And uh-huh. then, I, then my wife, uh, who is an, a, a U of A master gardener, um, she was always bringing in these sinks full of vegetables into our house. And I began to ask her the question, how much is all this food costing us? <laughs> you know, if, you know, if we had to go out and buy it, how much would it cost us? And when right. I got that number, I was convinced I was looking at the wrong place. I need to give up <laughs> this uh, thing out here in the, in, in the desert and come in back into the city. And the only way of successfully doing that was this technology that I had blown off 10 years earlier called <laughs> aquaponics. Oh, wow. And so in, in, in 2014, I, I saw Jim at the World Conference and had to get a picture with him to, to do penance for my oh, yes. uh, lack of wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> so, Good for you. Um, but the point now is that now that we know how to do this, now that you know, we have, there are so many people who have recognized the power of this particular technology mm-hmm. as far as growing large amounts of food inside of urban areas, the issue now is to move this from the realm of the early adopter, and yeah. that is, you know, I hear something for your listeners, that, you, that uh, I'm going to do this through my, through my talk here with you, but to give you some terms that you can actually Google, Perfect. and then you can follow, can follow along. Yes. Google was called the diffusion of innovation 
curves. Oh, interesting, now, of course. Now, now, when you look at that, you know, innovations move through our society in a known way, and it's well studied, and you'll see it in this diffusion of innovation curve, and also some great TED Talks like Start With Why. That's an example with, uh, with Simon Sinek. Oh, yeah, but, great book, by the way. Yeah, the, the tremendous book, and even better, better TED Talk. Yeah. But if, if you see this graph, you know, it's a bell-shaped curve, and on the left-hand side, where it begins, you have first the innovators. These are the folks you know, who think up these cool things to do, such as aquaponics. Oh, yes. But then you have another portion that I call the early adopters. Oh, yes. The early adopters are the ones that they say, yes, this is great. I want to be the first to do this, and I want to help make this great thing happen. No, the early adopters could be characterized as uh, folks who stood in line to, to buy an iPhone. Oh, yes. When they could have come yep. in, in to the Apple store a week later and bought one off the shelf. Right. Okay. In, in fact, I have to admit that I was one of those people. <laughs> I didn't stand in line. I didn't stand in line for the iPhone, but there was a circumstance that I needed to, that I needed to uh, have a new phone, and I was able to say, look at this. <laughs> have you ever seen one of these? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but and I still have that phone, by the way. Nice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a souvenir for me. Yeah, enough. exactly. Anyway. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> but um, so but where now, are we okay. at? Where are we at in yeah. this in this uh, diffusion of innovation curve on aquaponics? We are at a place that's called the chasm. The chasm is where new technologies go to die. Oh, the chasm interesting. is a place. The chasm is the place between the early adopters and the early majority, the mainstream market. Oh, yeah. And, the er and this is the, the place that all technologies have to jump if they are ever going to become a mainstream, really highly used technology. And the thing that usually gets you across the chasm is, at, is dealing with all of the basic issues, such as the food safety for us, for the price of, of a well, food safety is, is, is a big one, but yep. the legal things and zoning, et cetera, et cetera. But the main thing usually is price. Oh, you yes. see, on the, other, on the other side, the mainstream side, they have different needs than the early adopters. They need this technology, no matter how cool it is, to actually work for them. Right. They want to hire this technology to do something for them. And if, and if, it, and if they can't, it is not cost-effective, they won't hire the technology. Oh, right. And so that's where we are right now. One of the major issues we have with aquaponics is to bring that cost down oh, yeah. so that the mainstream market can hire this to do things beyond only growing food. But as an example, part of that mainstream market, uh -huh. which is a big one, that uh, is... Believe it or not, the backyard market. Oh, yes. Now, but now, but now we have to look at it differently than we do now. This is going to the mainstream market is not only just a matter of, yes, I can grow food in my backyard, is that I can actually grow economically significant oh, amounts yes. of food, food in, my backyard. in my backyard. Excellent. This is not, it's very similar to, if you really want a good analogy, Yes. The solar market. Oh, yeah. The solar, no, there, there are two sides to the solar market. There's the centralized production. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that would be, if I was to think of that in aquaponics, that would be um, somewhere in Phoenix building a multi-acre, million pounds a year, a year facility. That would be really nice. Okay. Yep. But then there is the distributed market. The, the, when you get solar panels on your house, what you're hoping is is that these things will generate electricity, enough electricity, and do it at a cost that's lower than what you than you will be paying for right. from your local power company. Yeah. Now, mind you, the sunlight's free. Yeah. But the units themselves cost money, and so amateurized over time is your cost per kilowatt hour more or less than you are paying currently from your local power company. If you are actually it is a lower cost when you're actually making money, uh -huh. not only saving money, you're actually making money from your system on your roof. The same thing, that same analogy must become true 
for aquaponics. For aquaponics. If you are, now mind you, okay, aquaponics is not a panacea. Okay, it goes along in the full spectrum and synergistically with every other method of urban agriculture. Uh-huh. Okay, this is just one part of the whole urban ag spectrum. But if you're going to have an aquaponics unit in your yard for the things that it can produce for you, can it grow food for less than it costs for you to go to your local organic food store? Uh-huh. If, if that's, okay, or else you might as well just go to the store. Right. Okay. Although there is one no, piece mate. to that. There is one piece is if we're growing it, we know what's in it, though. That's absolutely true, but I, and I do not quibble with that at all. Uh-huh. I'm only suggesting that if you... That when we go to a store that we have some reasonable trust in, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to call names, from them, but as you know, there are several different um, organic, quasi-organic yep. food stores that, yep. that people have somewhat degree of trust in. Are you growing, is the food that you're growing, does it cost less? We put an amateurization and everything else except for your labor cost. Uh-huh. Is it costing? Is it costing you less to grow that food than it does to go to get get in the car, spend the gasoline, which is food miles, of course, and and, yep. and um, air, air pollution, and everything else, but to go down here to the local to the local, the local store and buy it? That is one of the primary needs that people want. People want to see uh-huh. if this thing is so expensive to buy that you're asking. That if you, that anything that's coming off might be wonderful, but if not cost-effective, right. then the value of this new technology goes down. So, and so that is one of the major hurdles. Another one, of course, is aesthetics. It has to look. Oh pretty. yeah, it has to look pretty. Absolutely. So, the status of aquaponics today. It sounds like we're kind of touching on that. Can you um, talk about it going mainstream and where yeah. you know? So we're in this part of the curve. What's next? What's next is what I just said. We have to cross that chasm. We're at uh-huh. the chasm. In, in fact, um, I'm um, a member, I'm on the board of directors of the uh, National um, Aquaponics Association, and, uh-huh. uh, and, and I do encourage folks to go to that website because our conference is coming up in November. And our, and, and our focus on that conference is just, that, just this, going mainstream. Oh, yes. What, is, what do we have to do in order to make that happen? Excuse me. Our president just she just came back from you know, from a Mother Earth news conference and she said that, that everyone there already knows about aquaponics and they're all waiting for the next step. That's what folks want to know. What do we do next to go into into to the mainstream? Uh-huh. That's Perfect. what aquaponics is. Perfect. Perfect. So and you've been playing in this aquaponics with a couple of organizations, Next Horizon and Ag Tech. Can you talk about those? Okay, well Ag Tech is a, is it's a discipline. Ah, okay. You've heard of bio, okay, you've heard of biotechnology oh, yeah. and computer technology. Well, now there's agricultural technology. Oh, nice. Basically what, you know, and basically it's kind of under the surface. It's hard to even find a definition, but when you begin to Google that subject, you find these enormous players that are off in there. Uh, there are yes. some things that man has to have. Food is one of them. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Food, air, and water. And so... Food, air, and water, okay, yep. and, and in, ag, in ag tech, it plays in all three of those realms. Yeah. And so what, what ag tech is, is basically, and, and we're, we're, we have Next Horizon as an ag tech company. Oh, we are organizations. We are organizations that use the principles of sustainability, people, profit, and planet, in combination with every form of, of technology uh-huh. to enhance our ability to grow food, fiber, energy and to manage our water supply ah. now there's a lot more to it but those are the ones that are critical for us folks here in the desert uh-huh. and when we do this successfully it doesn't simply end at those at those four items every one of those items can be managed in a way to address contemporary issues if you know is there a way to use ag tech for example to create economic Empowerment. Got it. Is there a way to use ag tech to eliminate food deserts? Mm-hmm. Is there a way to use ag tech, you know, to improve the value of value of your home? And in each one of those solutions that that an ag tech firm like ours can create, there's additional economic opportunities, social opportunities, and environmental opportunities in each one of those. It only multiplies. And then that rolls into the own, this whole 
circular economy thing oh, yes. that is so critical for things for, for things to sustain today where we waste as little as possible uh-huh. and create as much as possible. So say more about the circular economy because um, that's that's a, a, an important place for us to go into the future. Yes, and again, no, this is something no, for your listeners to Google, but Google something called the uh, Boston Food Economy. Essentially, you have uh, what a circular economy does is that you capture every bit of the value stream. If you have, if I'm producing fish, then that, then those, then I am supplying someone who processes the fish. I'm supplying someone who transports the fish, and then that is sold to someone who will will, will turn this into the value-added product and sell the fish. Uh-huh. And then just to abbreviate it. Anything, any waste product can then, then go to the composters mm-hmm. and put back into the urban farming at the other end. Complete, complete circle. Now, that's a, a simplified, abbrevi- abbreviated version, but you yeah. can see how it works. And the circular economy is critical to cities like Phoenix. Phoenix is putting an enormous amount of money into the circular economy. They even have RFPs out right now for people who can help to, to reduce the amount of food waste going into the waste stream here in Phoenix. Yeah. So the, the city of Phoenix pays something like $17 a ton to transport food waste to the landfill. <laughs> that's a whole lot of money. It's that we waste 40% of our food. Yeah, that's and a whole lot of crazy. the city of Phoenix alone eats about 1.8 billion pounds of food a year, which uh-huh. we waste about 40%. That's huge. And so yeah. if they can find a way to encourage someone to help them reduce that food waste, there's an enormous value in that. Yeah. So these are now the opportunities that are coming up for companies like ours, like yours, in urban agriculture, in the circular economy, to, to benefit everyone in the city, everyone in the value, uh-huh. in, in the valley, while making a profit. There's nothing wrong with making a profit. Nothing wrong with it, that's, that's part for sure. Of being, that's part of being sustainable. Yep, absolutely. So what exactly do you do at Next Horizon? What we do uh, is that we work in our areas of expertise. Uh-huh. We work in... STEM education, of course, well, that's a solution set, and we've used, uh, we use um, aquaponics you know, to um, uh, help kids learn in science, technology, engineering, and math, and the arts, so it's STEAM, STEAM. Uh-huh. Uh, a good project that we're, working with, we're pleased to work with is at the Orchard Community Learning Center at the 9-11 West Baseline, where we have an aquaponics unit, and, uh, and their urban farm, and they uh, teach uh, kids from that area, largely in Spanish, nice. uh, STEAM. An incredible program. Yeah. A guy by the name of John Wan is absolutely wonderful. Oh yeah, John's um, a great guy. I've known him for years. Oh yes, he is. I'm, you know, he's a, he's extremely impressive. I I really like John. A another program that we're just starting uh, is out in Buckeye. Uh, um, at it's a it's a program uh, called called BOSS, and with Boston, uh, as a, we are working with them as far as economic. Um, was well, so entrepreneurial training. We are using oh, their nice. urban farm. Yeah. You know, we're using their urban farm as a foundation to train youth and others in how to be entrepreneurs. And uh, they, they have a complete urban farm out there. We've just now added the first um, aquaponic unit in Buckeye, I'm told. Nice. And uh, and um, uh, again, we just agreed to these things the other day, and and the the. Uh, uh, the, the, the director, um, the good uh, Reverend Dr. Uh, Burrell, uh, was very, he asked me, please say something about it. So I'm <laughs> fulfilling uh, his, his wish, and, uh, and I, nice. I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. But it means the Buckeye Outreach for Social Services, and it's a great project, and we're going to do some very in- interesting things with it. Nice. But now also, uh, Next Horizon uh, goes off into bi- bioenergy. One more comparison between a solar panel and agriculture is that they can both do the same thing. Solar panels capture the energy oh, for the yeah. sun and convert it, it into a form that people can use. Agriculture captures energy from the sun and converts it into a form that people can use. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so uh, these aquaponic units are literally becoming solar panels for food. What we do, what we had a, a chance to do with a, a, a company called Rick Powell recently, was a uh, feasibility study to, um, to, for rural electrification in Africa. 
where wow. there was going to be a part solar, and then the, and then also we were going to see if we could grow as uh-huh. much energy as we could in some form of biofuel, right. so that we can have you get 24-hour powers, part from part from the sun and part from uh, bi- biological sources, which are of course sustainable. Mm-hmm. And that and that was a great project to work on. We we're looking forward to hoping to work on other similar projects like that in the nice. near future. Nice. Sounds like so you these do some- are the. the Sounds like you do some really great work in that arena. So, well, these are things that we are we are excited about. Yeah. And, uh, the, the area of ag tech is new. We can kind of have to explain it to people. But when nice. you see what's really go- going on, there are just so many possibilities so, yeah. as far as how we can use the energy from the sun and convert it into forms that people can use, whether it's food or um, more traditional electricity. So there's yeah. great possibilities here. Nice. Well, my favorite part, of course, is the aquaponics. That, that, that is my is my, my first love, uh-huh. and where I like to do the most of our work. So we've had many decades of failures and successes with fish farming, and it seems to me like you're narrowing in onto a possible really great solution. Can you say more about what that is? Well, yeah, we have tremendous possibilities with. Um, traditional aquaculture, and uh-huh. I was uh, sorry to see that that did not succeed. But the solution now that we now have is so much better. Um, we are able to move the source of food production actually into cities beneficially, and because of that, we're able to create jobs here. We're able to produce low, uh, healthy food, both protein with fish and, uh-huh. and vegetables and fruit here. We're able to eliminate the food miles. We're able to improve freshness and food safety. Mm-hmm. We're, we're able to excite the public with it because they can now see food being produced right in front of them. Oh, yeah. We're now able to train people in not just food production, but in entrepreneurship itself. There's a another great program that's run by the Air National Rescue Committee that we can build in aquaponic farms. Love the IRC. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mark Bogart built the, the farm, and Tristan runs the program, and it's, it's a um, tremendous thing over on Indian School Road. I, I think it's, it's, it's Indian School or the Camelback, uh-huh. and, uh, and 17th Avenue, tremendous program. Wow. But we're able now to do all of these things inside the city. We're now able to uh, have this be a part of the integral integral uh, circular economy. Yeah. And that circular economy, the, the, the city of Phoenix has embraced this um, big, big time. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, biggest challenges we've always had with urban agriculture, not just with aquaponics, but urban agriculture in general, uh-huh. in general, are the cities embracing it. Oh, yeah. Because, um, well, at, the- at least in aquaponics, one of the major issues was zoning. Okay? Yeah. Can, can we be zoned, be zoned to do this? And I'm so proud that the city of Phoenix has embraced it. Uh, when we uh, wrote our new Phoenix general plan, every city has to have a general plan in, in Arizona rewritten every 10 years and accepted by the voters. So it's, uh-huh. it's, it's a big deal. The general plan is the dream for the city, and then the zoning follows the dream, and the development follows zoning. Yeah. Well, when I was I was vice chair of the writing of the new general plan here in Phoenix, and when they to put it out for uh, public comment, the urban farmers out there jumped into it big time and, and, and said, we want urban farming to be part of the, of the fabric yeah. of Phoenix, Arizona. And we wrote that into the plan, and the voters voted yes by a 76% margin. Oh, my gosh. That, that means cool. that when you go and read the general plan, it's called Plan Phoenix, P-O-A-M-P-H-X, and yep. you find it on the Phoenix.gov website. When you read this thing, it, it says straight out, we want to have healthy food systems so that everyone in Phoenix has access to healthy, healthy food. food. And urban agriculture and community gardens and, and, and farmers markets are ways that we, those we are right, written, that. Right, right in the plan. Yeah. Their words are in the plan. This is what we want to have nice. in Phoenix to accomplish the task. Yeah. We want to have healthy, sustainable, secure and, and um, uh, cost-effective or healthy food, in the, these are our marching orders. And now all that we 
but the urban farmers, whether we're doing traditional farming, hydroponics, aquaponics, or whatever technique, yeah. we have to, to now fulfill what the city wants, which is the opposite of having uh, to convince the city that we're okay. Yeah. So we have success and in the just, aquaculture market. Love that. Well, just not, 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 I'm all for aquaculture, I'm all for aquaponics, but this is for all urban farming. Yeah. We are a subsection, but this is, this is great for everyone. Oh, and just last week, a new farmer's market ordinance was accepted by the city council, which is supposed to make it easier to form farmer's markets in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And hopefully the other cities will follow our lead and do similar things. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I, you know, I love to see this kind of progress in, in getting food grown in the cities. In fact, that's the reason I do what I do. Exactly. So, Dr. Brooks, what drives you? My father was a preacher. Uh-huh. My mother, a, my mother, a scientist. Um, our particular denomination has a, has a belief that our mission is to, you know, part of our mission at the church is to serve the human, human need. Uh-huh. And Dad did that when he looked around his church with Presbyterian and mm-hmm. saw that there was a need for education for, for those students who, for the children. They didn't make it, yeah. they weren't ready for kindergarten. Right. And so he developed what, a program to fix that problem that actually became the nucleus of what we know today as Head Start. Oh, nice. That's verified in his obituary in the, in the Republic. Uh-huh. But I, I got that um, same vision. You know, my, my pulpit was elsewhere. Uh-huh. People need to eat. All people need to eat. I know, uh, as I learned more about sustainability, I learned that I was already working on sustainability and, and didn't know it. <laughs> Isn't that funny uh, so how that my happens? Mission, no, my mission with uh, extension was to help farmers use less money, spend less money, use less, less power, less yep. resources, yep. less, less everything that we now, and back then we called it low input farming, today we call it sustainable farming, Sustain, it's exactly yeah. the same thing. I love it. But we have to find a way in cities like ours where we have all kinds of people. We have people who have, who have are resource rich, and people who are resource poor, mm-hmm. but everyone should have the right to have access to healthy food. Healthy food, yeah. And so we, you know, my that's what drives me is to fulfill <laughs> that dream. And the the uh, direction that I've chosen is through urban agriculture with a focus on on aquaponics. So I'm all about education, and I have to know what book has been most influential for you in this process. Well, the books that have been most influential for me is not one that affected my thinking, but a book that has allowed me to uh, give people a way to learn the subject uh-huh. for, a, for a comparatively low, low cost. And that book, uh, it comes from the uh, United Nations. Oh, um, wow. Food, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization of the FAO of the UN, uh-huh. and it's called Small Scale Aquaponics Food Production. Mm. Uh, it's a book that now I teach aquaponics at uh, Mesa Community College. It's right. part of an amazing program uh, developed by a guy named Peter Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's now an urban horticulture degree program, and aquaponics is a required course. And, and Peter invited me to develop the course. Nice. And the, the, the book that I use is this book. It's free on the Internet. You can Google that and download yep. it. It's about 288 pages. It's not perfect, but it's written in a way where they work, look at the cost and look at the materials you need, and it gives you a, a pretty good understanding of how to grow aquaponically in warm water areas. I don't know how well it would work in cold water areas, but uh-huh. it's good for our situation here. Yeah. So that's a book that I do recommend. Perfect. Um, What's the title of that again? It's called Small Scale Aquaponic Food Production. It's a good one. I actually have one of the uh, a copy of it on my okay. shelf. So. Uh, but now there is a is another book, if I might talk about it for just a moment. Sure. And this is a, this is a book for children. Oh. The... The Valley Leadership Organization, I don't know how many of, of your listeners are familiar to it, with it, but hopefully everyone, but every large city in Arizona, and quite frankly across the United States, has an organization that's dedicated to training the next generation of leaders. Oh, yes. 
And in Phoenix, it's called Valley Leadership. Yep. And so our mayors have gone through it. It's an incredible program. But one of the things that they do is that when they, they, they take their class for that year and divide it into teams, and those teams have to go out and develop a project that does something wonderful. Uh-huh. For, for the year 2015, the winning project was a book called a children's book called Who Knew It Grew With Poo? Oh, nice. <laughs> Who Knew It Grew With Poo? Harnessing the potty joke, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the book is about aquaponics and the dream of aquaponics to grow healthy food for people. Yeah. Using fish as the catalyst. Incredible book. It's available on Amazon. And just speaking personally, uh-huh. I was surprised and pleased when I saw the hero of the book were, or heroes of the book were a guppy called Guppy and his owner, Farmer George. <laughs> oh, nice. And, I, and it was um, a true honor Yeah, and a great book. And I do it, uh, encourage uh, um it's in English and Spanish, and I do encourage people to do uh, buy a copy from, from Amazon if they could. Yeah. Now, I get nothing from this. This is just a great book that I think that's really good for grade school. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? The, real, the final piece of this is that I encourage people to, in, to delve into urban agriculture uh-huh. or buy from urban farmers. Um, I encourage those people who are interested in aquaponics to learn about it and to take a class and to try it, you know, for their own families. Uh-huh. You know, my family grows, you know, 400, 500, 100 pounds of food in our aquaponics in our backyard. And it's a, it's a comparably small system that, well, I, I had to go back and reinvent this. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not like the old ones. Again, we're trying to move into the mainstream. So oh, right. we've developed uh, a technique that is, and drops the cost by two-thirds off of the traditional systems that are are out there. And so I want people to understand how important this is, that you eat healthy, you have to eat healthy to survive. I just had an article that came out in Arizona Green Living Magazine Uh called Men uh, Eat Healthy If You Want to Live uh, in Your Best Arnold Schwarzenegger Accent. Uh-huh. So, you know, healthy food is critical for all of us because oh, yeah. all the things that kill us are all healthy food related. It's amazing, you know? isn't it? Yes, it is, and it's sad. Yeah. And so eat as healthy as possible. Grow it if you possibly can yourself, but definitely eat healthy. And that's the message that I really want to leave with people. There is, that's it. That's yeah. it. Cool. I learned this in Tucson recently. They have, they have a really strong aquaponics group in Tucson. Uh, good people down down there. But I know Dr. Ricosi had some um, influences in developing his system. One of the influences was that he came to uh, possibly San Diego, and they were doing this at a number of locations across the country, but where they were using water hyacinths as, as a method of filtering sewage water. Oh, yeah, of course. And he, and he looked at this system and said, wow. I could do that, if I could, I do that with vegetables. Yeah. Not use sewage, but use another form of fertilizer, in this case, fish. And that became the genesis of the UVI system. Wow. The thing about it was that if he did indeed see the San Diego system, uh-huh. he would have seen a young grad student flying around the place, trying <laughs> not to fall in, fall in the water, yeah. understanding how that thing worked, and that was me. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Dr. George. It's been a treat getting to chat with you. Thank you, my friend. It's been an honor to talk to you. I've wanted to do it for a long time. Mm-hmm. I would encourage your listeners to please go to our website. At, yeah, please. Uh, uh, NXTHorizon.com, N-X-T-H-O-R-I-Z-O-N.com. Uh, we have links there to things that we're doing, but also links to other resources they can find across the web. Please do check out you know, the Aquaponics Association. Uh-huh. There are really good things going on there nationally. Perfect. And we hope that you, that you all become part of the urban food movement, whether you grow it or eat it, become part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit denalicanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.